time to do so. We'll be turning together to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26. What page number, Donna? The first set of page numbers, 268. 216. I thought I heard you wrong. So page 216 in the Green Bible is the first set of page numbers. So just to recap, we've been studying and listening and learning from the stories about the king, the first kings of the people of God in the Old Testament, in first and second Samuel. And in particular, we've learned about stories from Saul, and now we've spent a lot of time learning with David or learning from David, uh, learning about how God weaves all of these stories when David lives well and when David doesn't live so well, and how God weaves all of those stories in to his story. We've seen how David has been faithful to God, and we've seen how David has shown kindness to others, and we've seen how David has failed to seek God and was harsh to others. And so we've seen that David really truly is like us, after all, isn't he? Uh, so before we open the word, before we, and before we go through some catching up in the story from the last time, uh, let's pray together. God, this is your word, and your scripture itself tells us that all of it is useful for our shaping, our teaching, and our our learning and our rebuking. And so as we hear this story today, as we think about this very, very intimate thing that's also so universal, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you give us the courage to stay present to this story and to be people who wonder about what we hear, about ourselves and what we are holding back and what we are keeping and how we are turning from the road that you set before us. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is I want to remind you back to a text that we heard in June. So don't worry, I'm not going to ask you any questions about it. I'm just going to remind you. Uh, Pastor Samuel was here and he preached on 1 Samuel 8. And in particular, I want to remind you about what God warns the people about kings. They want a king because they want to be like everybody else. And God says, yeah, but this is what a king is going to do to you. A king is going to take your sons from you and he's going to send them out in battle before himself. He's going to risk their lives to keep his own safe. A king is going to use his people for profit. He's going to take from their harvest. He's going to take the best that they have. He's going to put them to work in his own fields, all so that he can gain while you do the labor. A king is going to take your daughters to be his servants. A king is going to take the best of what you have and give it to other people who are going to ensure that he stays in power. And God says to them, you're going to become the slaves of your kings. And they say, we want a king because we want to be like everyone else. Even when God warns them of all of those things. So now hear what David does, the best king that Israel of the time ever had. 
So we've heard the stories leading up to the time where God makes that promise in, first Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7 to build an everlasting kingdom. We spent last week talking about how that kingdom is continuing to this day because of Jesus Christ through us as the Spirit of the Lord rests upon us as we rest in the vine that is the root of Jesse. Remember our Jesse tree that is Jesus. And from that time of that promise, David continues on to be king. He continues to fight the Philistines. And then in chapter 9, remember that promise he made to Jonathan about being kind and looking after Jonathan's kin and family? Chapter 9, David seeks to keep that promise with Jonathan's son. He shows him kindness and protection. And because of that experience of showing kindness and protection, he decides to seek peace with the Ammonites, another one of the major foes or challenging powers in the area. But instead of it going well with the Ammonites, the Ammonites reject the ambassadors that David sends to them, and they embarrass them. So this is a very culturally particular thing, but they shave off the ambassadors' beards, embarrassing them, making them not want to go back home. And so they let David know what's happened, and David sends them away while their beards grow back. And of course, David cannot let this insult stand, and so he goes to war with the Ammonites. And that war continues. And then we get to chapter 11, which most of us, when I say the name Bathsheba, will know what happens. And that story begins with these words. In the spring, when kings go off to war, when kings lead their soldiers out to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem. David takes the sons of Israel and sends them before him. To battle. And then, living the life of leisure, the text says that in the afternoon, David arose from his couch. In the afternoon, do you get to retire when you're king? I don't think so. And so we see that David has taken from the people and put them to work for himself so that he does not have to work so hard. David has begun this journey of showing that God knew what he was talking about when he warned them about the kings. And he sees Bathsheba, who was cleansing herself ritually on her roof, and he finds out about her. He finds out that she's married, and yet he still sends for her so that he can take her and sleep with her. And he assaults Bathsheba, and she goes away, takes the daughters of his people, and turns them into his slaves. And the news comes to David that she's pregnant, and so David begins his plan of covering up what he has done to keep his power and his position and his fame and his glory and his honor. And so he calls Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from the battle, and he tries to suggest, well, he doesn't just try, he suggests to Uriah that he go home and enjoy the company of his wife, hoping that if Uriah does so, he can just say that Uriah is the father of the baby. 
But Uriah is a man who has honor and faithfulness and tells David, I can't do that. The ark of God, remember the ark of God that goes before the people in battle, the ark of God and the soldiers are all out there battling, and who am I to rest when they are at risk? And so that night it doesn't work. And the next night, David tries even further, and he gets Uriah drunk, hoping that in that drunken stupor, Uriah will do what David wants him to do so that David's sins can be covered up and forgotten or avoided having to be dealt with. And again, Uriah doesn't do it. And so David tries one last time, and he tries in a way that is final for Uriah. Because if he can't get Uriah to do this thing, he's going to make it so that he can say Uriah did this thing. And he sends Uriah back to battle with instructions to his main army man, Joab, to put Uriah into the front lines and then to pull all of the troops back that he can so that Uriah surely meets his end in battle. Because if Uriah dies, then he can just say that Uriah is the dad of this baby that's coming. And as a result of this action, many more men besides Uriah die. And David is getting the report about this battle, and Joab sends this message with the guy who has to go give this report. When David gets mad about what he hears, just tell him that Uriah is dead. And when David hears that word, it's like a switch happens, and he's no longer angry about what, he's do- about what he's hearing. Instead, he says, oh, don't, don't let this be evil in your sight. Don't worry. Don't be displeased about what's happened. War is war. Can you imagine? War is war. David feels clear and safe. And it's all worked out. In fact, so much so, we pick up the story in verse 26 of chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or that can be translated, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and his children. He used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. 
He said to Nathan, Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is the word of the Lord. So the thing that David has done displeases God. God has given all that David needs, and yet David still wants and takes more. Here's a preacher I sometimes read. When he's ref- he reflects on this story, he thinks to commit this kind of sin, you have to omit God from your mind. You have to put God out of your mind and leave him out of your decisions to be able to do such things to others and to yourselves. And yet, God is present all the time. And when God comes back through his prophet Nathan and brings the word of light and truth to him, he confronts David with the consequences of his actions. He says, you have introduced the sword to your family, and it's not going to leave. You have introduced violence against women in your family, And it will continue. You have tried to do all of this in secret and hide it. But this and everything that happens is going to be out in the public on full display. So it seems that in a world with sin, our almighty God allows the consequences of our sin to play out and is bold enough to say that he has caused there to be consequences to our sin. Things that he can stop, he decides not to stop. That God's design 
for a fallen world is that humans have to learn that sin has consequences. Sin has repercussions. What we do leads to other things happening. And it's as though the house of cards that David has constructed around himself comes tumbling down as he hears this word of the Lord. The truth of what he has done and what he has now caused. The model he has set for his sons. The hurt and the scars and the wounds that he has given to Bathsheba that she now daily faces in his home. The shame that he might feel or must feel knowing what he's done. And yet, David's response is to repent, to admit his wrongdoing. David did what he did because he thought he could. As the one in power, he said, I can take whatever I want. Isn't that what Bill Clinton said in his memoir about what he did with Monica Lewinsky? Isn't that what Donald Trump said on a bus in a recorded conversation? We take because we think we can. And then God tells us, You are that man. And instead of doing like he did in the first place, instead of avoiding the, avoiding the situation, instead of trying to cover it up, instead of living in secrecy, instead of making excuses, David repents. He goes from thinking of no one but himself, but being confronted by the heart of God, he stays still, he doesn't run, he doesn't make excuses, and he confesses. And just as quickly as he confesses, God forgives. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to him, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. The Lord has put away your sin, but has not put away the consequences of your sin. Because God is quick to forgive, but he also visits the sin of one generation to the next. In other words, in a world that is bent towards justice and shalom and peace with God, yet is marred by sin, our actions have consequences that we do not consider when we make them. And part of the road of we walk is to walk from forgiveness to making amends, from forgiveness of God, from God to reconciling with one another. Because God's love is unconditional, yes, and he puts away our sin, but who here can naturally do that for others? And so we put on having, it's kind of like in those movies or books, when you're in a contaminated zone and there's that like zone of decontamination before you go back out into the world, like if there's a virus 
And so you have to go and get washed over, and then you can go back into the real world, the regular world. The danger of what was there has to be washed off of you. And it's almost as though God is saying, yes, we know this bad thing happened here. And yes, that bad thing has consequences out here that you have to face. But you don't go as the person who has done the bad thing. You go, having been washed by the forgiveness of God, to go address the consequences you have had on other people. You go cleansed by God, carrying God's forgiveness as you seek the forgiveness of others. Because when, and probably, you will experience that rejection by other people when you ask and seek forgiveness. Because when that road of seeking reconciliation takes multiple attempts with our brothers and sisters whom we have caused harm to, You have to draw upon the well of God's forgiveness for you. It has to start with knowing God's forgiveness before being able to do anything about the harm and the consequences and the way you have affected other people. And in its very essence, it is a change of what you were when you did that thing. Because think with me, in the heat of the moment when you're arguing with your spouse and you say that unkind thing, you're not thinking about what you're modeling to your children. When you are driven by your own passions, you don't care what kind of wounds you're inflicting on someone else. When you're worried about staying secure, You're willing to let other people suffer and pay the price for your security. I've been watching the Vietnam War documentary that Ken Burns did last year, and I'm only into episode four, but the number of times that those politicians had the chance to stop what they were doing, knowing, knowing that they could not win that war, and yet still willing, and how many times was it because there was an election coming? How many times they were willing to send other men to their death to secure their power? And yet God is quick to forgive. With an unconditional love that does not leave us, shown by a promise kept by Christ on the cross. A Holy Spirit that is given to be God with us, to empower us to clean up our messes. So why do we choose to stay where we are? Why do we make excuses? Why do we try to cover up our bad deeds and our wrongdoings? Why do we avoid being confronted by them? Because, mark it, within God's family, God will send his word if you are listening. Each week we encounter these truths in scripture. As I have reflected 
on my own life and what I see in the lives of others, I think that we are not willing to risk knowing that quick forgiveness of God. Because when we look at what comes next, there is too much shame in the consequences of having to admit and do that hard work of reconciliation, of making amends, of, a, of apologizing and being vulnerable. Walter Brueggemann says that in this story, we see that by what he has done, David truly is marked. And though God has put away his sin, these consequences have left their mark. What he has done has left its mark, not just on him, but all of Israel. And this is more than we want to know about David. And he says, more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. Because this is intimate, but it is universal. We can look to these politicians and be angry at them for what they have done, but know this, we do it too. And every time that we do not embrace the forgiveness of God and take that next step towards making amends and seeking reconciliation in the world, we are actually turning from God. The Screwtape Letters is that book where one of the, the devil's henchmen is tutoring another of the new recruits or new, uh, new henchmen, so to speak, who will go out in the world tempting us with ways to get us away from the presence of God, get us to turn from God. And in one letter, Wormwood is, has written to Screwtape about the fact that he's a little concerned about the types of activities that the guy he's tempting is getting into. They don't seem big enough. And Screwtape writes back to him, You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. Oh, how they would have loved the story of David. But then he says to this young recruit, but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from our enemy, which is God. So the only thing that matters is the way that you are able to separate the man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and toward nothing. Murder is not better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Doesn't that sound like a road of avoidance? A road of denial? a road of not turning towards the forgiveness of God, embracing that quick forgiveness of God, and wearing that forgiveness out into the world. That doesn't mean you have to celebrate the consequences of your sin. But that means that we don't go with shame to face them. We go 
covered with the grace and mercy of God. And David may be a man who is not always after God's heart, but he has known God enough to know this to be true. That his sins are many, but God's mercy is more. And we may not like what God lets happen in this story. The very next verses say that God promises that the child that is born to David and Bathsheba will die because of what David has done. But we cannot let the consequences of our sins keep us from seeking the forgiveness of God. For without that, we can do nothing. The road of putting God more and more out of your mind, because knowing forgiveness is to know what's next, is to truly not know the presence of Christ with you. And so we know. We know that God has put away our sin. We know we carry that forgiveness forward and we pray and seek more of that grace and mercy as we clean up our messes in this world. And as we do so, we realize how much more need of mercy and grace we are as we walk the road of reconciliation and change of our insides and our world. For this is the way of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, even in this story, the temptation is there. The temptation is to focus on the consequences that you say you bring and what happened in this world. And how even that can be a temptation to avoid the true heart of the matter. To see that there is no sin too small or too great that cannot know your forgiveness. And so we pray that we will be people who will step into that, that place where forgiveness washes us and becomes the source of our life lived in this world that is full of constant opportunity to clean up what we have done. And that when we do so, we become agents of your grace and your mercy. We become ambassadors of your love and your forgiveness. That our transformation in these things of being vulnerable enough to admit our wrongdoing to one another and to seek to make amends, to seek to transform and renew and restore people and the wounds that we have caused them, whether that be systemically or individually, we know that the fount of our courage and our strength is you. Our confidence is in our forgiveness in you. Our confidence comes from knowing that all of our sins have been reconciled to you by Jesus on the cross. And when we don't live that way, we deny 
that truth. And so we pray that you will continue to encourage us to, peop to be people who do this differently, who do this in the way that brings honor and glory to you. Thank you. Thank you, God, that your mercy is more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.